two households, both alike in monstrosity, in Forks, Washington, where we lay our scene. Trick or treat, you're listening to the Nibbler Podcast, the Twilight Book Club for star-crossed lovers. Werewolf, I gasped. Yes, that was the word that I was choking on. There'd never been one moment that I wasn't completely aware that Edward Cullen was above and beyond the ordinary. But Jacob? Jacob, who was just Jacob, and nothing more than that. Jacob, my friend. Jacob, the only human I'd ever been able to relate to. And he wasn't even human. I fought the urge to scream again. What did this say about me? I knew the answer to that one. It said that there was something deeply wrong with me. Why else would my life be filled with characters from horror movies? I'm Heather Price-Wright. And I'm Alex Dallenberg. And happy Halloween, ghosts and ghouls. We are recording a monster episode of Monsters today, (laughs) which is about Twilight, book two, New Moon. So taking a short break from our beloved Half-Blood Prince to talk about some werewolves and vampires and the general monstrosity that is, I don't know, a really boring one-third of this book. (laughs) In this episode, you will hear cursing, and uh, this time you will hear spoilers for the Twilight series, including this and future books, although only I have read the future books, so... I saw the movie for number three. That's true. So anyway, that's what we're doing. It's possible that we'll spoil Harry Potter at some point. Just by accident, but y'all but know you, what happens yeah, in Harry Potter. you know Potter. the drill. You will also hear some adult themes. This week's adult themes are paternalism, adrenaline junkies, tour groups, boys becoming men, and men becoming wolves. Uh, we'll see how this goes this time around. It was a little bit of a beast last time. Alex, what happens in this book? So, hopefully this synopsis makes sense. If you haven't read the Twilight books, which I'm assuming many of our... I don't know. What do you think the breakdown is? I think a lot of people read Twilight. Just in general in this country, a lot of people read Twilight. All right. Hopefully you're still with us. It was like an international bestseller. Quibbler devotees. If you don't want to listen to the Twilight episode, that's fine. You super don't have to. No, but if you want to listen, but you don't want to read the books... I hope this summary makes sense. Okay, well, give it a shot. All right, I'm going to try to do it in one minute, but... False. (laughs) You actually could do this in one minute, probably. Basically, it's Bella gets a paper cut. Edward breaks up with her after she gets a paper cut. Bella jumps off a cliff. Edward goes to Italy. They make up. I mean... That's what happens in this book. That's the broad strokes. A paper cut sets this all in motion. Yeah, that's wild. But let's get into it. All right, In Twilight New Moon, is it Twilight New Moon or just New Moon? In the Twilight Saga, colon, New Moon. We once again return to the life of Isabella Marie Swan, who seems just like any other normal teenager in the Pacific Northwest, except she has a vampire for a boyfriend. So as the book opens, it's coming up on Bella's 18th birthday. 
And she's kind of being a birthday monster, but not the kind of birthday monster that's like, it's my birthday month. The kind of birthday monster that's like, oh, ignore my birthday or I'll like, don't talk about my birthday or I'll like melt or something. You know what I'm talking, you know the kind of people I'm talking about? Yeah, there's two kinds of birthday monsters in this world. Yeah, there's two birthday monsters. So her boyfriend's a monster, a regular monster, and she's a birthday monster. She wants everyone to ignore her birthday because she's freaking out because she's going to be 18, which means that she'll be older than her boyfriend, who is 17 forever. But the Cullens, which are, oh, her boyfriend is Edward Cullen, uh, if you're not initiated into, like, Twilight. And Edward Cullen's a vampire. And he's got this adopted family that are the Cullen family. Anyway, the Cullens do not, this family of vampires that Bella is tight with, do not ignore Bella's birthday. They actually shower her with gifts because they're rich as fuck. Because one of the Cullens, Alice Cullen, can see the future, which she uses in... Investing. Yeah, she which she uses to play the stock market, which is actually not the dumbest use of being able to tell the future. Bella goes over to the Cullens for a birthday party... But as she's unwrapping one of her gifts, she gets a paper cut, which sends Edward's adopted brother Jasper into a frenzy. He's overwhelmed by the blood scent and tries to attack Bella. They have to pull Jasper off of her, but in, like, the ruckus, she gets, like, a bunch more cuts because she, like, falls through a glass table or something. Uh, Anyway, Bella gets, like, really fucked up. Jasper runs away because he feels super ashamed because these vampires are good vampires and they don't drink human blood. They only hunt like endangered species in the mountains. (laughs) Edward is horrified because his worst fear is that his vampire nature will put Bella in danger. Carlisle, who is the dad and also a doctor, stitches up Bella and talks about vampire theology. He believes that vampires have souls or something like souls and that there's an afterlife for them, Edward does not, which is why he's super hesitant about turning Bella into a vampire because Bella wants to be a vampire and he doesn't want her to be. That's like the fucking thrust of this book. A little time passes and Edward goes to Bella and says that the Cullens are leaving Forks and that he doesn't love her anymore. Basically, he says, it's not me, it's you. She asks why and he says... Basically, he says, because baby, now we've got bad blood. Oh, God. You know, it used to be mad love. You made a really deep paper cut, and baby, now we've got bad blood. So. I can't believe you finished that joke. They've got problems, and Edward doesn't think they can solve them. And the Cullens leave Forks, Washington, which sends. Basically, I was thinking of Taylor Swift, like, the entire time I was reading this book. Why? It's very, like. It is very Swiftian. It's very Swiftian. But not Jonathan Swiftian. Indeed, it's it is Taylor, Taylor Swiftian. Swiftian. Like at one point at the gym, I was listening to this and I'm like, I just need to listen to 1989 now because it's like <laughs> boppier and shorter, frankly. But still has some of the same like gothic imagery that we really enjoy. I know. Edward's abrupt departure sends Bella into a deep, deep depression Uh, as well as the reader, because we now spend several hundred pages of Bella feeling extremely sad. At some point during Bella's blue period, she starts to engage in risky decision-making because she just wants to feel something. And also when she does, she hears Edward's voice, like, telling her not to do, like, said risky thing. Like, she approaches these strangers outside a bar 
when it's really late after going to see a movie. And she also gets really into motorcycles. She gets into motorcycles because it's like the one way to like get into danger in Forks, she decides, because it's super fucking rainy outside and motorcycles are dangerous. So she gets these like kind of used motorcycle parts and goes to her friend Jacob Black, who we might remember, lives on the Quileute Reservation and has like the Blacks are friends with uh, Bella's father, Charlie. Uh, So she goes to Jacob with these motorcycle parts and is like, hey, can you like help me build these motorcycles? Because he's super handy and likes working on cars. So Bella and Jacob, who had only been acquaintances before, like start to develop this deep friendship and they like bond over building these motorcycles. Uh, But when they go out riding, like Bella's like able to see like weird phantasm Edward being like, don't ride that motorcycle. It's super dangerous. He says something like way more patronizing than that, but bottom line, she likes to put herself in dangerous situations so that Edward will like talk down to her. (laughs) (laughs) But also Bella is starting to feel like happy for the first time because of this budding relationship with Jacob, who also is like six foot four now and getting like really fucking swole. Yeah, he's super hot by all descriptions. But then Jacob starts acting kind of weird. Like they have this awkward, like sort of not really date at the movies with this like third wheel. And there's a lot of like fucking teen logistics that go into how this all came together. But Jacob gets like like this fever and has to go home. So does the other kid. But he's like completely fucking extraneous. The other guy just had like fucking norovirus. But (laughs) Mike Newton. All the monsters are always shitting on Mike Newton. But he's just like... He seems like a perfectly nice young man. He's like man. fine. He's not like extraordinary. He just, you know, works at the fucking hardware store. Anyway, after this incident at the movies, Jacob stops answering Bella's calls. Eventually she confronts him and he's like, I can't hang out with you anymore. Also, you hang out with bloodsuckers. So, oh fuck, Jacob knows something. Uh, also, a bear has been eating people. Or they think a bear has been eating people. Oh yeah. There's been like bear sightings. But, like, a really fucking big-ass bear. Like a weird bear. A scary, like, a bear that wins, like, Fat Bear Week. No, he's not fat. He's, like, scary. Fat Bear Week is, like, the best. Dude, those bears are scary. They're round boys. Yeah, but if you, like... A round girl one. If you encountered one of those fat bears... It couldn't run very fast. Dude, I don't know. They're pretty strong. That's true. Fair enough. But it's not... They're not, like, fat bears. They're, like, big (laughs) muscle man bears. They're muscle bears. Bella's worried that Jacob has fallen under the influence of Sam Uli, one of the members of the tribe that has this, like, kind of gang, but they mostly just seem to have, like, bonfires and go cliff diving, which sounds kind of fun. So, while Jacob is ignoring her, Bella decides to go off hiking by herself to find the amazing meadow where she used to, like, smooch with Edward. Belle and Jacob had been, like, kind of looking for this meadow, but they hadn't found it. Although Jacob doesn't know why she wants to find this, like, sweet meadow. He just thinks it's a fucking sweet meadow, which, in fairness, it is, because the Olympic Peninsula is beautiful. Bella finally finds the meadow, where she runs into but-but-but-motherfucking Laurence, who was part of the group of vampires that tried to kill her in the last book. He didn't try to kill her. He, like, how much do I need to explain this? You can stop there. Laurent is just a fucking rando vampire, but Bella seems kind of happy to see him because Bella has fucking problems. 
Carl's like, Laurent! Hey, buddy! Long time no see! Laurent tells Bella that this other vampire, Victoria, whose mate James tried to kill her in the last book, has been stalking her, but now he's glad that he's found her because he's going to eat her instead, and he's going to make it, like, super painless. So Bella's like, oh, fuck, I'm going to die. But then a bunch of motherfucking giant wolves appear out of nowhere and run Laurent off. So Bella's like, damn, that was fucking weird. <laughs> part is weird bella just reacts to this like it's nothing she's like oh man that was fucking wild i totally forgot about that scene i absolutely forgot about Laurent. that's where she sees the werewolves no, for the first time she doesn't I... know they're werewolves right now she just thinks they're like big ass wolves radio like they'd gotten into like some fucking plutonium or something i don't know she just thinks they're like jumbo wolves these wolves are absolute units at some point jacob like visits bella he god Fucking damn it. Jacob comes to Bella's window and throws like pebbles at it or whatever. And she opens it and it's like fucking Romeo and Juliet. And Jacob comes into her room and he's like, look, I can't tell you what's going on with me. But if you guess, then it's cool. So remember about the Quillute legends I told you about last year where we... Become werewolves. Werewolves. Think about it. So he leaves, and then Bella's like, Holy shit! Jacob is a ba 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 motherfucking werewolf. And she doesn't even have to, like, use Google to figure it out. Like, she did with Edward being a vampire. www.werewolves.com <laughs> Siri, what is a werewolf? <laughs> So Bella figures it out. She goes to Jacob and he's like, see, this is why we can't be friends. You're barking up the wrong tree. (laughs) But somehow she convinces him that it's like cool if she sticks around. So she kind of becomes like part of the fucking wolf gang. Basically, the Quileute become wolves whenever there are vampires around because the vampires are their ancient enemies. So it turns out that Sam Yuli didn't have a weird cliff-diving bonfire gang. He's actually like the senior werewolf, or the alpha, and they're all part of a pack, and they've been protecting, like, forks. Or their territory, not forks. Oh, I completely forgot about the part where Edward breaks up with Bella, and she just lies down in the forest for, like, 48 hours. (laughs) And, like, the whole town has to, like, search for her. She's and then Sam Yuli, who's obviously a fucking werewolf, finds her because he's like used his wolf powers to find her like under a pile of leaves or whatever. Yeah, she just Edward breaks up with her and she just like lies down. She's like, fuck this. She's like, let the wilderness take me. I'm tapping out. Yep. So, I mean, I guess we've all felt that way at points, but we don't always act on it. But that's Bella for you. So... Bella gets kind of, like, integrated into this, like, wolf pack. Like, she's not part of the pack because she's not a wolf, but she's wolf adjacent. The wolves all have super cool powers. So it's not like old school werewolves, like, where, like, the full moon rises and they become a werewolf, like, involuntarily. They can sort of control it. Uh, They all have, like, really high body temperatures when they're normal humans. So they're all running at, like, 110 degrees. And they heal really fast. And when they're wolves, they can read each other's minds. 
not just can, have to. Yeah. They can hear each other's thoughts at all times. So like it's, they're listening to people talking. So it's pretty fucking extra, as usual. The wolves take responsibility for protecting Bella from Victoria, who is hunting for her. Uh, because the wolves can go wherever they want because the Cullens have left town. They made this treaty with the Cullens like years and years and years ago where like the vampires don't come on their turf and the werewolves like don't go on theirs. But like all bets are off since the Cullens are like teaching at Cornell or whatever. I think that's what Carlisle does. He like goes and teaches like a seminar at Cornell. No, they move to... Is it Cornell or Syracuse? No, they say they go to LA. For some reason they say they go to LA even though they actually move to like upstate New York. So throw people off the scent. I, I, yeah, I guess so. So Bella just hangs around La Push, Washington for all of spring break. But then one day she's really, really missing Edward. And also she's stressed out because Jacob, her best friend, is off hunting vampires and she's worried that he'll get hurt. She's just feeling some type of way and is super sad. And she jumps off a cliff. That's literally what happens. She kind of has a reason. She was, like, supposed to try cliff diving with Jacob. But then Jacob has to, like, do his, like, wolf duties. And she's like, well, I'm just going to jump off this cliff anyway. But, like, a storm is kicking up, so the water is really dark and treacherous. And she wants to hear Edward's voice. Because, like, Edward's last request was don't do anything to, like, hurt yourself. So she wants to, like, hurt weird phantasm Edward by, like, doing risky shit. So... And Bella jumps off a fucking cliff into the water. She almost drowns, but Jacob shows up, pulls her out of the water. Also during this time, Bella's dad, Charlie's best friend, Harry Clearwater, has died of a heart attack. Harry Clearwater is a member of the tribe, so everybody's really sad about that. And that, that, that That's fucking sad. Bella does not give a shit. Bella seems not too chuffed about it. No, she's sad. She's sad for Charlie. Kind of. She doesn't, like, take a break from being incredibly fucking self-destructive and insane to, like, deal with it appropriately. (laughs) So Jacob returns Bella to her home, but when they get there, they see one of the Cullens' cars there. Alice Cullen, Edward's sister, has, like, showed up to see what the fuck happened to Bella because she saw a vision of her jumping off the cliff. So Alice thought that Bella tried to kill herself, even though it was, like, actually more complicated than that. Which doesn't make sense, because can't Alice see decisions? So, like, Bella didn't decide to kill herself. Yeah, she was just like, I'm going to jump off this cliff and see what happens. For, like, fun, I guess. <laughs> I'm well, going like, to jump off this cliff and see what happens. It was for the adrenaline. She's like, I don't know. I don't know if it'll kill me or not. So Jacob is super pissed that Bella is hanging out with, like, the vampire crowd again. So Bella and Alice, like, hang out together for a few days, and at some point... Jacob comes back and tells Bella that as long as the Cullens are back around, he can't come on, like, vampire territory anymore and protect her from, like, the evil vampires because of this treaty. They have this kind of, like, intense moment where Bella briefly contemplates kissing Jacob. She's had a couple of these moments, and they always get interrupted. She's like, man, this would be, like, so easy. Like, Jacob is great. We really get along. And, like, it's not Edward, but... Like, I could be happy. So she's about to kiss Jacob when the fucking telephone rings. And Jacob picks it up for some reason, even though it's Bella's house. The person on the phone says it's Carlisle Cullen calling for Charlie. Jacob says he's at the funeral. And then the person on the other end of the line hangs up immediately. 
After Jacob hangs up, Alice bursts in and says, that wasn't Carlisle on the phone. That was Edward pretending to be Carlisle. And now he thinks that Bella is dead. So Edward thinks for a variety of convoluted reasons that Bella killed herself by jumping off a cliff. And Alice says that Edward has gone to the Volturi in Italy to have them kill him. Bella flashes back to this time when they were once again watching Romeo and Juliet when Edward said, if anything happened to you, I would go to the Volturi and provoke them into killing me. The Volturi are basically the vampire government. They're like the vampire royal family. They're these super ancient vampires that have taken it upon themselves to like keep the secret of vampireness. And if any vampires get out of line, the Volturi like destroy them. So Edward is going to Volterra, Italy, which is like where the fucking Volturi hang out to like get them to kill him. So Bella fucking just bails on her grieving father <laughs> and she and Alice rush toward Italy to intercept Edward before he can show the people of the town his sparkle. <laughs> Vampires sparkle, by the way. Uh, they stop Edward right before he can reveal himself to the humans at this, like, at this St. Marcus Day festival. Everybody is celebrating, like, the day that the vampires were driven out of the city, which is ironic because it's, like, the vampire city. Edward sees Bella again and is like, oh, I must be in heaven. Uh, then he realizes he's not actually dead. Uh, the Volturi are not pleased. The Volturi summon Alice, Edward, and Bella to their secret lair, which has, like, a super nice reception desk. It's like a really nice dentist's office. So they meet the Volturi. Aro, the Volturi's leader, he's pretty creepy looking. He's got, like, filmy eyes and, like, thin, papery skin, but he's, like, still kind of arresting and beautiful in that vampire way. He learns that Bella is, like, not affected by their vampire superpowers, so, like... Edward can't read Bella's mind. Aro is also a mind reader, and he can't read Bella's mind. There's this other fucking tiny little girl vampire that can, like, cause people pain, but she can't hurt Bella. So Aro's like, holy shit, you would be an amazing fucking vampire. Do you want to join us? Edward's like, no, no, she shouldn't become a vampire. So the Volturi are like, well, then we have to kill Bella because humans can't know about vampires. But Alice is able to satisfy Aro by, like, letting him read her mind and see the future. And in the future, Bella is a vampire. So the Volturi reluctantly let the trio go. And as they're leaving, a tour group is walking in to be, like, fed to the vampires, which is super fucking scary. Bella gets home. Charlie is fucking pissed off. Says he never wants to see Edward with Bella again, which is just really fucking understandable after yeah, all of this. Totally reasonable and probably <laughs> correct. Nevertheless, Bella wakes up in the morning and Edward is by her side. She's like, oh my God, I'm dead. And like, this is heaven or whatever. They which both is like do this. Really fucking dramatic. Yeah. <laughs> I just think you'd be able to tell if you were dead. Oh, come on, guys. This isn't like toothless. Do you really think? Yeah. That is deep tracks. Do you remember that movie? Yeah, With I do. Kirstie Alley as the fucking tooth fairy. It was kind of dark. It was extremely dark for a kid's comedy. This is not toothless. This is toothful. <laughs> but Bella eventually figures out that she's not fucking dead. And we get this whole reveal where Edward 
divulges that he was also devastated by the breakup, but that he broke up with her because it was like for her own good and he wanted her to have a normal life. But now that he realizes that that's not possible, he's back and he's not going to leave her again. So basically it's going to be forever or we're going to go down in flames. Very Swiftian. Very Swiftian. Bella then insists that Edward just get it over with and transform her into a vampire. He refuses, and then she puts it to a vote for the whole Cullen family. The Cullens are, like, gonna vote in favor, but Edward, like, embraces his inner Mitch McConnell and, like, filibusters and gives all these reasons that she doesn't have to become a vampire yet. Eventually, Carlisle says he'll change her into a vampire after high school graduation. But then Edward tells Bella, like, no, no, I'll turn you into vampire, but on one condition, that you marry me. And then Bella's like, whoa, whoa. That's a lot of commitment, That's a lot of commitment. (laughs) What will people think? (laughs) So they're once again, like, sort of at an impasse, but I guess they're engaged now? No, they're not officially engaged yet. He doesn't, like, do the pop the question thing until, like, the next book. That's the climax of the next book. They're, like, pre-engaged at this point. They have promise rings. Yeah, yeah. They have teenage promise rings. (laughs) Also, it turns out, like, the power of love was, like, causing her visions. Or some shit. I don't know. It's not really satisfactorily explained. It's a very J.K. Rowling, like, decision. She hears his voice on the wind. (laughs) That's actually, like, what happens. I know. And also, Edward maybe believes in heaven. After all. So, that all gets sorted out. Everything goes back to normal, more or less. The Cullens move back to Forks. Carlisle gets his old job at the hospital back because rural Washington has a brain drain and they recognize how important it is to have qualified physicians. Uh, One day as Edward and Bella are returning home to get Bella home before Charlie's curfew because she is super hella fucking grounded now. They find that Jacob's at the house. He's shown Charlie the motorcycle that they built together. So Charlie's even more fucking pissed because as a law officer, he fucking hates motorcycles, which are very dangerous. Uh, Jacob is also there to warn Edward about the treaty that they have with the werewolves, which is that they are not allowed to bite anyone, not kill Jacob says, bite. So that's another complication for the Bella vampire transition plan. Jacob and Bella also, like, have a moment. Jacob mouths that he misses Bella. Basically, Jacob's like, he drinks blood spurts. I don't wear shirts. He's a vampire and I am a werewolf. Dreaming about the day when you wake up and find that what you've been looking for has been here the whole time. You belong with me. Doesn't happen quite like that, but in my mind, it does. Bella vows to herself that despite the complications, she is going to stay friends with Jacob. And that's what happens in Twilight New Moon. All right, so... This book was a fucking slog. Yeah, despite that jumbo-sized summary, um, actually, there are huge swaths of this pretty giant book. It's 500-plus pages. Yeah, it's extremely long, and I would say an easy 300 pages are excruciatingly boring. (laughs) 
getting through the first third of this book after that first chapter with the birthday party. Which is very exciting. Which is really exciting. That's a good chapter. And then after that, when Edward leaves and Bella is just fucking brutally depressed for months, it's like real-time depression. Which I think could be interesting with a more interesting writer. There is a universe in which that's a book that's kind of experimental and lyric and worth reading. But this is just a total morass of boring. I think she has some nice passages about Bella's depression, but they're sort of repeated over and over and over again. Like, there's not many beat changes for her. Like, she kind of has one setting in this book. Maybe that's unfair, because there's like, she does the weird thrill-seeking thing, but even then, it's because she's got this like, there's this description of this, like, gnawing hole in her chest that's probably in the book, I, I don't know how many times. Like, many more times. than a dozen. Yeah. So, it's actually a pretty good description the first time you read it. Like, it feels like a pretty realistic depiction of what a particularly hard breakup feels like. like she does describe this kind of, like, this lacuna, like, punched through her chest. I remember my first, like, really bad breakup, and I'm kind of scared of flying, and I took, like, a flight, like, pretty soon afterwards. And I just remember, like, sitting in the, like, airplane seat. And I just, like, wasn't even scared. I was like, I don't give a fuck about anything, basically. I was just, like, somnolently looking out the window, like, at the clouds and thinking, like, uh, like, this plane could go down, whatever. My first really hard breakup was right before Christmas break in college. And I remember coming home and... As I think regular listeners to this podcast know, I'm a huge fan of the Muppets. So I remember coming home and thinking that watching the Muppet Christmas Carol would cheer me up. And just sitting there, it was just sort of like lights and sounds, like shooting past my head. And it made me so much more depressed because I was like, nothing I like matters. I'll never love anything again, including the Muppets. Life is over. I will never feel good again. But you didn't jump off a cliff. I... Didn't jump off a cliff, that's true. So, yes, on one hand, this is a pretty accurate depiction of a really bad teenage breakup. On the other hand, I just don't think I need to read it for 300 pages. (laughs) I just think we could have maybe sped through a little bit of this a little bit more easily. Right. So... It's this really weird structure. And I don't know if this is a deliberate structure because I don't know that Stephanie Meyer deliberately wrote extremely boring parts of her book. But so the beginning, like it gets started with a bang. Yeah, unlike the first Twilight, which is really a slow burn because you don't even find out there's vampires until like a significant percentage into the book. And up until that point, we've just been, like, going to class with Bella, like, in real time, almost. There is a lot of minute-by-minute descriptions in general in these books. Of, like, Bella microwaving a lasagna. Yeah, it's like she (laughs) she doesn't know how to use time particularly effectively. She seems to feel the need to really describe. Like, for example, the plane ride to Italy. I was just like... I don't need to feel like I'm on this plane ride. Like, I don't need so much verisimilitude that I'm not sure if I will ever land in Italy. You could have gotten through this in two sentences about Bella's general state of mind. And then we land. And I just, 
I don't need to see the flight attendants go down the aisle. We made our flight with seconds to spare, and then the true torture began. The plane sat idle on the tarmac while the flight attendants strolled so casually up and down the aisle, patting the bags in the overhead compartments to make sure everything fit. The pilots leaned out of the cockpit, chatting with them as they passed. Alice's hand was hard on my shoulder, holding me my seat while I bounced anxiously up and down. It's faster than running, she reminded me in a low voice. I just nodded in time with my bouncing. At last, the plane rolled lazily from the gate, building speed with a gradual steadiness that tortured me further. I expected some kind of relief when we achieved liftoff, but my frenzied impatience didn't lessen. Alice lifted the phone on the back of the seat in front of her before we'd stopped climbing, turning her back on the stewardess who eyed her with disapproval. Something about my expression stopped the stewardess from coming over to protest. I do think Which there are, literally happens. That does literally happen. I do think there are fewer of the random details in this book. I think the writing actually has improved over yes. uh, the first book. Because like there, there are just fewer moments where she awkwardly says, Mike Newton was leaning against his 89 Camaro. And yeah. I was I had just gotten out of my like 1954 Chevy. So yeah. I, I think, Less I don't know. It felt, a little, and models. it felt a little cleaner, I think. Yeah, I think it's better written. I just think the actual content. I mean, this movie is really boring, too. Yeah, it is. The first two thirds of the movie suck. <laughs> and we really liked the first movie, and we're actually pretty big fans of a lot of the performances in the movies. Like, that's our kind of, like, counterintuitive take. We think Kristen Stewart, for example, is very good as Bella. I, I don't even, I mean, I don't even know if I dislike this book per se. I have these weird, because, like, just hating this book would be fucking boring, because we kind of started as a joke for April Fool's last year, and... It's hard to get all the way through a 500-page book that you just purely dislike. It is extremely inconsistent, I would say. Like, there's parts... There were parts... She's pretty good at the, like, just supernatural weirdness of, like, the werewolves and the vampires. I can kind of, like, groove along at those parts, but it's just, like we said in the last Nibbler episode, Bella's inner life is not super interesting, and yeah. I have to, like, check myself, because I always wonder, if I have, like, a visceral reaction to, like, a female character, is that just, like, latent misogyny, like, buried deep within me that's, like, coming out? But I, I don't know. What do, you, what do you think? Well, like, am I having a misogynistic reaction to find her kind of, like, boring and... I think about misogyny in literature all the time as listeners to (laughs) the quibbler part of this podcast will know and no I think Bella is has virtually no inner life that doesn't revolve around these two stupid monster men yeah she's boring the fact that these books are in first person and it's Bella's first person account is truly wild that's why in some ways the movies are better than the books because Kristen Stewart fucking acts you know, like she's suggesting the presence of an inner monologue, or but a human we don't. Being. <laughs> we don't have to hear it. Bella, <laughs> actually, the like the gaping maw description is a pretty good stand-in for what it feels like to live inside of Bella. She is this big hole in the middle of this narrative. The thing is that when the books delve into other parts of this universe, 
they get exciting. Yeah. I really like the Volturi. I actually think the Volturi are one of the better done aspects of this whole series. I think that they're really interesting sort of pseudo villains that aren't just sort of like evil. Again, so with the structure, it's like fucking boring, fucking boring for pages and pages and pages. The Jacob stuff like kind of picks up. The werewolf stuff picks up a little more. Super exciting trip to Italy. And then the end is boring. (laughs) Which like, why would you build up that big, awesome head of steam and then the end is them just like sitting on her bed talking about Romeo and Juliet again. Like, no one fucking needs that. It's a very long falling action. It yeah. is. The denouement is like another hundred <laughs> pages. And you're just like, what am I reading? I, I don't again, it's real time conversations about nothing. About their no, about their relationship. That's not nothing. I know, but, but the relationship is pretty boring. Repetitive and circular and dull. God, the end is so fucking boring. I, like, we get back from Italy and you're like, okay, cool, the book's over. False. There's all this other bullshit because she feels the need to tie up every single loose end, which is just not necessary in a good book. I don't think. So you don't like this book? No, I, there's parts of it I really enjoyed. I just think it's like an incredibly strange structure and pacing. Okay. There are parts of it that I genuinely hated. (laughs) But there are parts of it that I thought were really fun. So, I don't know. Did you like it? Like I said, I have such a weird love-hate relationship with these books because they're a slog, I would say. I think maybe if I had found my way to them as if they'd been written when I was a teenager, I would have found them, like, really emotionally resident because there's something... You get sort of, like, swept up in the melodrama... They came out when I was, I think the first one came out when I was like a freshman or sophomore in college. So I was still in my late teens. I was about, I was like a little older than Bella is in the books. Yeah. And I actually despised them then. <laughs> I liked them a lot more as an adult woman than I did as like a late teen, early 20 something. That, to be fair, might have to do with the fact that that is like the period of time in which I went through this awful breakup. Right. So I don't think it was that fun to just like read about myself being sad. Right. But, you know, I hated, <laughs> I, I was sort of, I found them kind of addictive. They are kind of addictive. Yeah. They're very, they're like propulsive in a totally weird way. Well, they're also about addictive personalities. Yeah, that's true. Like so, two addictive personalities are the center of relationship. So let's talk about that actually, because I think in the last book, we were sort of moderately Team Edward. Like, we well, sort well, of... Jacob wasn't really in the picture yet. Yeah, but you kind of knew he was going to be. And also, I think we were like, Edward's got some weird tendencies, but their chemistry is real. Like, there's some genuinely kind of like sexy and romantic moments. Fuck Edward in this <laughs> Edward is a genuinely terrible, terrible, I guess, non-person. I have a question about this. Does she even love him? Like, there's a lot of telling and not showing. We know she loves him because she says she's utterly in love with him, and then she's like, falls into like a crippling depression. I don't feel like we have a ton of actual evidence that they have any affection, frankly. Most of the scenes we see dialogue between them, they're bickering or fighting about something totally ridiculous. Well, I mean... Yeah, I guess so, yeah. You know, like, you don't actually see them being 
loving and affectionate that often. It's always incredibly fraught and uncomfortable. He's stroking her hair a lot. Well, so there's a lot of physical affection right, between yeah. them. Their relationship seems to me to be, like, totally physical. Because, like, if I could name all the things Bella loves about Edward, it's, like, the crooked smile, the fact that his breath smells like candy or whatever. His, like, angelic features. She's constantly describing how, like, amazing he looks. Which, I mean, you know, that's, like, fun for a sexy romance. There's nothing wrong with that. Well, there kind of is because, yeah, they have... There's no emotional resonance between them. And the scenes between them are boring. Right. Yeah, like, well, there was there were a lot more of the kind of physical chemistry scenes in the first book. And this one is sort of about their emotional life. And it's not as compelling. No, it's terrible. Well, you know, what's interesting is, to the question of whether she loves him, Stephanie Meyer tells us that vampires are virtually like genetically manufactured to be irresistible to humans right it's how they hunt there's no reason to believe that bella is responding to anything except all of the sort of like evolutionary markers of his creepy murder pheromones yeah exactly whenever she's around him it's like it's like a drug yeah she's like fucking tripping balls whenever he's around and you know on the other side edward doesn't really know that much about Bella. He certainly knows less about her than he knows about any other human being because he can't read her mind. Right. And he's obsessed with the smell of her blood. Right. I think this is a purely physical, two-sided obsession. Yeah, because the Volturi even have, like, a word for it. It's some fucking Italian thing that I don't remember. Her, like, blood sings, sings to him. him. yeah. And, yeah, he, he. I don't know. He seems to get off on, like, being around this human who's irresistible to him but that he can't, like eat yeah it at best his feelings for bella are kind of a kink and he sort of justified it by cloaking his weird physical obsession in all this language yeah language around like romantic love but i just don't i don't i I don't i don't really buy it in this book well honestly i mean when you think about like 50 shades of gray which is based on these books that in some ways feels more accurate because Their relationship, I mean, gradually they do fall in love, which isn't super believable in those books either. But their relationship is purely sexual for a long time. And he gets obsessed with the idea of dominating her and like fucking her, basically. And that seems to be what Edward is mostly obsessed with. The sort of like bloodlust version of like a BDSM desire. Yeah. So Fifty Shades of Grey, the relationship feels more like true to the actual nature of these characters that is a blazing hot take but a good one well no because it's it is purely physical right they don't have anything in common they're literally from different centuries (laughs) like what would they have in common i mean i guess bella's kind of an old soul Okay, there's an old soul, and then there's, like, a born-in-the-Spanish-influenza soul. (laughs) Like, I have an old soul. I don't feel like I was born in, like, 1911 or whatever. Right. So the thing that's interesting in this book, because I think that was kind of true in the first one, but here we have a contrast. It was a very strange kind of day. I enjoyed myself. Even at the dump, and the slopping rain and ankle-deep mud... I wondered at first if it was just the aftershock of losing the numbness, but I didn't think that was enough of an explanation. I was beginning to think it was mostly Jacob. It wasn't just that he was always so happy to see me, or that he didn't watch me out of the corner of his eye, waiting for me to do something that would mark me as crazy or depressed. 
It was nothing that related to me at all. It was Jacob himself. Jacob was simply a perpetually happy person, and he carried that happiness with him like an aura, sharing it with whoever was near him. Like an earthbound sun, whenever someone was within his gravitational pull, Jacob warmed them. It was natural, a part of who he was. No wonder I was so eager to see him. Here we get to watch Bella interact with someone that she has really genuine human chemistry with. And it grows in a believable way. They have this shared pursuit of rebuilding these motorcycles. They laugh at each other's jokes. They spend time together that is pleasant and mutually beneficial. Bella mentions things that she likes about Jacob that are about his personality, like his sunny disposition. Yeah, she likes that he's optimistic. She likes that he's kind. She likes that he's easygoing. Jacob has personality traits, <laughs> which Edward genuinely doesn't, I mean, he other does. than being a controlling dick. Yeah, he's patronizing and, like, aloof. Well, we do have to talk about this you know, he has sort in, of a sense of humor. He's like can be kind of caustically funny. He's a little wry. But moving back from Jacob for just a second to earlier in the book, this breakup move by Edward. Oh fuck this so hard. So patronizing and so nasty. And the idea that he doesn't know that he's basically ruining Bella's life is just unfathomable. If he doesn't know what this is going to do to her then that's just further proof that he literally doesn't know her at all. Right. He has no sense of her as a human being. Because Bella's already, like, I would say tends toward being kind of depressive. She feels low-grade, kind of bluesy and like, for most of the first book, And too. bad about herself. She doesn't oh, feel yeah. good about herself, like, she has, ever. like, she does have, like, really low self-esteem. And Edward is just playing on all of that to destroy her because he thinks that he knows what's best for her in this like incredibly cruel patronizing way like she's a baby yeah it's gross and then when he comes back he does the whole like performative self-pity thing where he's like oh like i felt so horrible about it how you can have I have no idea yeah. how much harder it was for me than how can for I, you. Yeah, how can I live with myself? And then she's like, I don't want you to carry that like guilt on you. So like Edward gets off like scot-free, basically. And then he gets mad at her for her reaction to the terrible thing he did to her. I hoped that if you thought I'd moved on, so would you. A clean break, I whispered through unmoving lips. Exactly. But I never imagined it would be so easy to do. I thought it would be next to impossible. That you would be so sure of the truth that I would have to lie through my teeth for hours to even plant the seed of doubt in your head. I lied. And I'm so sorry. Sorry because I hurt you. Sorry because it was a worthless effort. Sorry that I couldn't protect you from what I am. I lied to save you, and it didn't work. I'm sorry. But how could you believe me after all the thousand times I've told you I love you? How could you let one word break your faith in me? I didn't answer. I was too shocked to form a rational response. I could see it in your eyes. that you honestly believe that I didn't want you anymore? The most absurd, ridiculous concept 
as if there were any way that I could exist without needing you. He's like, it does, like, break my heart that you actually believed I didn't love you anymore. Like, what the fuck? Like, uh, dude, that's so emotionally manipulative and fucked up. It's incredibly abusive and gaslighting. Basically, what he tells Bella is, you can never believe anything I say. There is no reason for you to ever assume that I am being honest or straightforward with you because I have purely selfish personal motivations for telling you things and it's a control move and too. very rarely telling the truth yeah but they, yeah but there will also be consequences for you misreading me exactly exactly but i will also punish you like eternally for not understanding my like double speak this is a horrible relationship it's a horrible relationship and you know jacob gives her some agency for the first half of the book at least when he's not a werewolf jacob is like a pretty good love interest. I mean, even when he's a werewolf, he isn't nearly as controlling as Edward. He's not as good at it. No, I think he's not as controlling, period. Okay. I think he still likes Bella as a human being. Right. And we know he's not obsessed with Bella because, I mean, this is kind of happens later in the books, but this is something that we find out about werewolves, is they do what's called imprinting. So they have actually like a biological mechanism for developing the kind of obsession that Edward has with Bella. Right. But Jacob doesn't have that with Bella. He just fucking likes her, which is totally like monumental for these books that are just about emotional abuse. (laughs) So even when he becomes a werewolf, he becomes like more of a dick. But I'm team Jacob. I think I am team Jacob as well, at least for now. Also, even Barring further evidence, I think he maybe kisses her without her permission in the next book. Edward does way more shit without her permission. Well, okay, yeah. I'm tentatively, I'm, I'm, no, I'm pretty team Jacob at the moment. The other thing- Or maybe just team Bella, take some time to yourself, get some counseling. Frankly, I'm team, like, just be fucking single. marry Mike Newton <laughs> and have, like, a super nice life owning a small business. Everybody hates Mike Newton, and he just- He's just He's kind. Just a fucking normal guy. <laughs> He's he has this totally healthy regular crush and pays attention to her emotionally. Like lights up as she sort of begins to emerge from her depression. He's got some like nice guy tendencies though. Ugh. I mean, I think the actual point of these books is that all men are monsters. Jacob and Edward are both literally monsters. I mean, that's a decent thesis. <laughs> and I think I mean With the exception of a couple of the adults, like, Charlie's not a monster. Carlisle is a wonderful character, but still literally a monster. (laughs) But, like, another thing about Jacob is he's, like, kind of resonating on her wavelength. Like, he understands intuitively, for example, that he can't say the Cullens' names. Right. Yeah, that's true. responds to her, like, body language. I mean, it's one of those things, like, this is an extreme example, but, you know, like, when that story came out cat person yeah about like how there's like a really fine line between non-consensual sex and just like really shitty coercive uncomfortable for a woman sex where like it's not assault it's just like bad and the kind of takeaway is like if men could like read women's sort of reactions to them at all they might understand that it's not that fun to have sex with a person who's really not into it Like, Jacob does that with Bella. Not sexually, but what Jacob does with Bella is interpret and respond appropriately and accurately to her emotions. He 
allows her to be sad when she's sad. He picks up on his ability to cheer her up and utilizes it for her benefit rather than to manipulate her. Allows her to be her own person and responds when he kind of touches a nerve not by continuing to touch that nerve but by like backing the fuck off yeah that's true he's way more empathic which is ironic because he can't read minds well he can read the wolves minds that's true and i think that kind of mind reading like it's so interesting how jacob and edward respond to their similar gift because it makes edward really cynical and hateful toward humans and jacob's mind reading is deeply empathic Like, he feels the emotions of his fellow werewolves. He, like, has this profound understanding of, for example, how Sam Yuli feels about what he did to Emily. Right. Which, like, we can get to in a minute because that's, like, more fucked up. But mind reading makes Jacob truly empathetic. Also, there's this gross scene in the epilogue where Edward is just finishing Jacob's sentences because he's reading his mind. Right, which is... Fucked up super duper aggressive and inappropriate and yeah he doesn't respect basically edward respects no human's privacy bella's is the only one he sort of does because he literally can't read her mind because she has this weird like vampire superpower immunity which is like a turn on for him but like he doesn't ask anyone if he can like read their fucking mind that's true it's really non-consensual in the even his family members he's like Picking up on their thoughts, like, constantly. And using them against them. Yeah. You know if he could read Bella's thoughts, he would use it against her constantly. He would use it to absolutely believe that, yeah. And I don't think Jacob would do that. Jacob, like, says that they actively try to give each other privacy in the wolf pack, like, when they can. Wow, all right. Like, kind of tune their minds to, like, a different station when they can tell that somebody is having thoughts they would rather keep private. I would say Jacob's just much more ethical. Also, Edward doesn't think he has a soul, which means he can sort of, like, throw ethics out the window. Because he already thinks he's sort of, like, damned. So he doesn't have to be good. He still is sort of trying because, you know, he's abiding by their, like, vampire diet. I think not murdering people is a pretty low bar for, like, living an ethical life. Yeah, but if you were hardwired to want to murder 24-7 and it was, like, the thing you most wanted to do... Yeah, okay, fine. Edward, if, you, if you were like yeah. a heroin addict for blood, like... If we're calling that redeeming, fine. I guess I well, it's with, a redeeming okay, quality. In the framework of this world, yeah, like, no, I'd I say that, that is like a point on the side of the Edward but ledger. think about the fact that Jacob is hardwired to kill Edward. That's and true. never lays a hand on him. In terms of talking about abuse and the total normalization of physical and psychological violence against women. Can we talk about Sam and Emily? Yeah. Because they are imprinted. Their love is like chemical and biological and sort of like immutable. So if you didn't read the book and you're listening to this out of pure morbid curiosity, Sam is the leader of the wolf pack and his like fiance. Yeah. His fiance, Emily has these terrible scars like all down like one side of her body from where he basically became a werewolf and freaked out. And attacked her because werewolves are, like, really naturally aggressive and they can, if you get, like, too upset as a human, you'll turn into a werewolf and just, like, go fucking wild. And uh, so, like, 
Sam did this early in his career as a werewolf when he was the only member of the tribe who had like become was like a werewolf at that time. So, um, so there's this scene where like Bella sees the scars and she's like, "Oh man, Sam must feel so fucking bad about that." Uh, <laughs> and this is like it's meant to be about like this burden Sam carries for the yeah. fact that he like slashed the fuck out of his girlfriend. Even Bella's like first thought is my god Sam must feel really guilty as opposed to like my god it must be really difficult for Emily to like spend the rest of her life with a man who she can never all the way guarantee won't do this to her again right like there's no reason for Emily to think like oh I'm safe from this man and it's supposed to be kind of about like her acceptance and their like totally pure love which is and because she says again and again yeah she says again and again like Oh, I'm just in the presence of, like, the most perfect love, but, like... He clawed the shit out of her. Yeah, man. So there's all... He, like, quote-unquote, lost control. So, like, repeatedly, there's this thread running through these books about, like, yes, men and wolves and vampires will, like, hurt you, but... It's so much worse for them. It's not, and it's not necessarily their fault. I know. They have it's to like carry in, the burden for their own violence, which is worse than having the violence committed against it's you. It's like in their nature. And there's a lot about, there's there's just a lot about how it's women's responsibility to control men's urges for them. These books are so fundamentally about abstinence. Yeah, like definitely. every, almost every male character's sort of like central struggle is to abstain from something and that's like deeply natural to them and kind of the ennobling nature of the struggle right so edward abstains from killing people and specifically drinking bella's blood jacob tries to abstain from like losing control and becoming a werewolf when that's like not an appropriate thing to do bella has to like keep it in check around edward like at least a little bit because he might kill her if she doesn't so that's the thing the the tenets of these book tell me that men's urges are fundamentally more extreme and stronger than the urges of women for even like it's easier with the exception of carlisle it's easier for the female collins to adjust to like the smell of blood like esme alice and rosalie are all like more chill with bella's blood scent they have to leave the room. Eventually. Yeah. Alice can be around it. Like, I mean, Alice can be around Bella all the time. Alice can, like, embrace Bella. That's true. Yeah. And Edward sort of does at, like, you're given to understand that Edward does this at much higher personal cost. Right. Than any of the other vampire characters. And so, yeah, the 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 sort of central message of the book is that women's responsibility is to spend most of their time accounting for and sort of being in charge of allowing men to control themselves or like facilitating men's ability to control themselves. So like, yeah, Bella has to be in complete control of her sexuality at all times, which is so about abstinence. Yeah. So she's like constantly careful of not angering Jacob. She's like really afraid of like turning Edward on too much. And both of them, like, Jacob, I would say less than Edward, but both of them put that responsibility on her. Even with Charlie, who I think Charlie's great. Um, He's actually a really good dad. But she feels more responsibility to protect his life than her life. 
Um, although, I mean, you know, absence is like a viewpoint that's legitimate. Yeah, I don't think there's anything... Like, it's a personal choice that's completely valid. I do... I agree. I think making the personal choice to abstain from sex is, like, a totally reasonable decision to make. I think that the message about men's urges and women's responsibility to manage those urges is really damaging. Yeah. And I also think the idea that, like, folks who abstain are, like, inherently more virtuous is really problematic. But as a personal decision, yeah, like, fine. There's no real reason to, like, have sex before marriage if you're not, like, into that idea. Yeah. So. You certainly don't have to. Anyway, let's talk about some of the vampire lore, which I think is, uh, you know, it's pretty good. Yeah, she does this well. She does some of the gothic horror, like, nicely. So, once again, why aren't these books just about Carlisle? He's so, he's such a good character. Vampire doctor. This could be like a CW series, but he has this really interesting conversation while he's stitching up Bella about basically his vampire theology. He believes that there's some kind of like afterlife or greater purpose for the vampire species. And Edward is, I guess, a vampire atheist, basically, or not even an atheist. He just thinks they're damned and humans aren't. Carlisle is, like, virtually the only character who lives in any kind of, like, a well-conceived moral universe. Right. He has decided what he believes is right and wrong. He has decided sort of rationale and kind of inputs and outcomes for right and wrong. And he has a belief system that isn't just, like, nihilism and obsession. I think it's hard to argue that there's a better character than Carlisle in these books. I don't really know who I would identify as more interesting, except the other fundamental kind of vampire creepy crawly lore that we get, which is my favorite part of the Twilight series, Mm -hmm. which is the Volturi. They're so scary. (laughs) They're scary, but they're also like, they're not evil. Like they're not Voldemort. I guess they're evil. If you're a human, they're evil, but... uh... Well, but you just talked about like the fact that... They're, like, programmed with every fiber of their being to do this. Mm-hmm. They're, they're hunters. They're carnivores. They haven't made, like, the purely ethical choice. But, I mean, neither have we. We both eat meat. That's true. The Volturi have, like, basically embraced their nature. And they've decided, like, this is who we are. This is what we do. We're better than humans. And... It's sort of like if Voldemort actually did run, like, the Ministry of Magic a But bit. if he had been running the Ministry of Magic for centuries and, like, millennia, actually. Except Voldemort wants to take over the world. The Volturi just want to, like, ensure, like, vampire secrecy and, like, a decent food supply. So it's like if the Ministry of Magic was, like, in charge of, like, harvesting humans. Well, the other thing... Which is Volturi, pretty fucked up, but... The Volturi aren't invested in, like, significantly growing their ranks. No. Like, the Volturi don't have any reason to sort of, like, amass followers. They just want people to follow the rules. And to, like, maintain their own status by, like, recruiting this weird vampire Praetorian guard. Right. That so they have. they are only interested in recruitment of exceptional individuals to kind of join their coven rather than sort of like amassing armies of followers. Yeah. Because they don't need to. They have so much power that they don't need like muscle beyond, like you said, like a pretty small like guard force. Yeah. 
and they're interested specifically in the Cullens because the Cullens all have these sort of like even for vampires preternatural preternatural abilities and also because they're they seem genuinely interested in the Cullens ability to live their way of life yeah there's like a fascination but I think they also probably see it like as a nascent threat you know do they uh they don't seem to. They yeah, they I think because seem... I think they believe that it's so like extreme and ascetic that they'll never like become, I guess, vampire mainstream. But you know, they're definitely like interested in what Carlisle is up to. I think the thing that is Arrow th- kind of sees it as a curio. I think the thing that's threatening to the Volturi about the Cullen way of life is that it allows them to live in much closer proximity to humans. It's a much more dire threat to the statute of secrecy because already like multiple humans and or werewolves sort of in the Cullen community have figured out what they are. So they're just much more likely to like give up the ghost by virtue of the fact that they spend a lot of time in the company of humans, which no other vampires really do. Right. So I guess that's why it would be threatening. But I still think, yeah, Aro in particular is like pretty into it. He's just like, this is weird. What are you guys, what's your guys' like deal? I would like to know more. <laughs> Marcus and Caius are like bored as shit. <laughs> but that's because they're thousands of years old. They've seen it all, man. Everything is fucking boring when you're that old. <laughs> that's why it would suck to live that long. They've seen it's it all. It's just like nothing would be interesting ever again. A lot of time to binge Netflix, I guess. I mean, you could do that dozens of times over. That's true. They're probably um, actually really excited by the advent of, like, streaming entertainment. <laughs> uh, I doubt it. <laughs> well, come on. All they had was, like, the fucking Aeneid for, like, centuries or whatever. You know? They're like, oh, thank God. They're pretty effective textual analyzers, I'm sure. So the Cullens are... This is another, to me, like, pretty clear analog for, like, I guess Christianity, or at least something like it. Being people of faith, the Cullens are these, this, like kind of separate flock that have partitioned themselves off from the wickedness of their greater society because Carlyle has decided that uh, that vampires are fallen. He doesn't, he doesn't quite see themselves as, like, fallen, but he has decided that, there like, to like, drink blood is a sin and, right. like, sin is their default and that it's their responsibility to rise above those like carnal instincts basically so he's like set up this sect of vampires yeah and there is the sense that they're like chosen Mm -hmm. and that their destiny is different from that of others of their kind by virtue of their choices they've sort of chosen themselves well no carlisle's chosen them right oh yeah that's true carlisle's like like their christ figure carlisle's literally chosen them yeah yeah carlisle picks them one by one as, like, disciples of the this elect. way of life. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. All right. That makes sense. Carlyle is kind of the prophet of this kind of sect, I would say. Yeah. Hand selecting and then, like, disseminating the teachings of his way of life. I don't know. That's interesting. And they're, like, separate from the, like, civil authorities. Exactly. You know, that they the sort Volturi of are, like, very, higher... like... They're like, all right, give unto Caesar or whatever. We won't, like, violate the Volturi's laws, but we don't believe what the Volturi are promulgating. And there's just, like, the general sense of, like, exceptionalism. Mm-hmm. Which I do think feels analogous to religion or to being, yeah, of a certain faith tradition. 
Forks is just the city on a hill, man, for uh, yep. all of vampire kind to aspire <laughs> to. All right, we've talked about we've talked about vampires. Let's get into werewolves. This kind of goes back to our urges conversation, like a corollary to it. But so the werewolves, much like the vampires, are different than I guess what we would call the stereotypical pop culture werewolves. Like they have more or less control over when they turn into wolves. They don't have like the traditional weaknesses, like if the full moon sets, they become human again, or a silver bullet can kill them. So it's similar to the vampires because Myers vampires aren't like susceptible to like garlic or steaks or the sun makes them glitter, but it doesn't hurt them. Um, So Myers monsters don't have weaknesses. They're basically invincible. Except by each other. Yeah, except by each other. And But the only check on them is their, like, basically ability to control themselves. There also is nothing, you're right, there's nothing mortals can do. Yeah. There's no Van Helsing type role for humans to take on vampires. You're right, they are, which is... Humans are fucking helpless it's in this universe. Boring. There should be some talisman against these kinds of monstrosities. Because <laughs> otherwise, yeah, this is like a boring universe in which only monsters can like get other monsters. Also, it kind of begs the question, why don't the vampires just like take over the world? Why bother with like secrecy or whatever? I don't know. That's a good question. Like they're basic. I guess they would risk running out of like food if well, they... Well, there also like aren't that many of them. That's true. I guess... If enough humans got together and were like, all right, we just need to, like, drop a nuclear bomb on, Volta- on Volterra, like, maybe humans also, would win, like, I the vampire they would, wars. They clearly, like, are kind of warlike. Yeah. So I feel like it would result in, like, a massive kind of, like, international vampire conflict well, where I mean, they were like constantly warring over like human territory. And she kind of talks about that. She says the Cullens and the Volturi are basically the biggest groupings of their kind and there's seven of them. So the Volturi are there to like keep the peace basically. I just don't think they could be a society because they can't live in society with one another. Right. Because they all just like they're just naturally aggressive. But anyway I thought it was interesting that, well, that, and it's- that there's, no, there's no weaknesses. It's all about like it is all about like self-control. It is true that their weaknesses are all kind of internal. It's also interesting to me that these werewolves come about as sort of like a genetic mutation in response to the presence of enemies, which is just like a funny way to think about like evolution in a way that like they've evolved specifically to combat this particular kind of threat because they're like perfect vampire killing monsters. Is this the only group of people that do this? I can't imagine so. Because the Volturi seem to know about werewolves. There must be other natural vampire enemies. Maybe that maybe it's like different animals, but I they can't be the only werewolves in the world. That yeah. would be wild. It would be. Like just this one very specific group in the Pacific Northwest that like evolved make, this ability. That doesn't make much sense to me. She's so obsessed with mind reading <laughs> as I wonder why. I think Mind reading sort of makes interpersonal relationships kind of boring because there's no mystery about, yeah, like how a person views the world or like what they want or... That's a good plot shortcut, you know, if a character, if the characters can just deduce what other people are thinking. The same with like Alice's ability to forecast the future can motivate all kinds of 
what would otherwise be nonsensical plot moves. That's true, but it's just interesting that multiple sets of characters... It's weird that Jacob and Edward can both read minds and kind of annoying to give them the same. I mean, to be fair, Jacob can only read the minds of his pack, but it's still kind of irritating. There's a bunch of different kinds of mind reading because Aro, the leader of the Volturi, can also read minds, but he has to touch you and he can like read your mind more deeply. Like Edward can see like thoughts flicker through your mind in the moment. If Aro touches you, he can kind of see basically everything you've ever thought. Right, the whole history of your thoughts and feelings, and that's super much scarier. Which is pretty fucking intense. Right. Aro is is a good villain, I think. Is he really a villain? I don't know, we sort of discussed this, but yeah, I don't know. Because on the one hand, it's like, the Volturi- we're fucking vampires, what do you want us to do? Uh, well, also, they're, they don't... But that's the that's the ethical question, right? Like, but I mean, let's talk about specifically in the universe of these books, where like the good guys are the Collins. Like, are they the enemies of the Collins? No, not spe- no. He's like, give my regards to Carlisle. Later, on, so I don't really think of them as villains. Later on, they become like one of the more existential threats to the Collins for like various reasons involving Bella and Bella and Edwards. Spoiler alert: fucking offspring, which like <laughs> yuck. In the last Nibbler episode, we talked about kind of the problematic fact that Meyer has, like, graphed this werewolf mythology onto when they can actual Native American tribe in the United States of America. So we don't have to go into that too deeply. But here's another, like, weird aspect of it. So the vampires are coded, like, very white and European. I, I suppose there can be, like, not white vampires, but well, they even have like. Laurent is black in the movies, and there I don't think that's true. He's in not the described books. as black no. in the books. Yeah, he's described as like pale. So, you know, they drive like European cars. They're coded so European that the vampire government is in like the cradle of classical civilization, and those the Volturi like rose up with like the Etruscans, which like kind of gave way to the Roman Empire. And they're, like, very wealthy and refined in general. So meanwhile, the werewolves, who are, like, the Native Americans, are more, like, hot-tempered and animalistic, and they're tied to the land. Uh, there's just some, like, very... There's, like, a lot of essentialism going on there, uh, there I would I would say. And I, my question is, like, vampires are kind of coded as, like, colonizers, I think there's like a really colonial undertone to the relationship between the vampires and the werewolves. Because vampires originally in these in this lore invade the werewolf lands and that's why you get this werewolf response mechanism to begin with. And also, I mean, vampires are literally extractive. Yeah, that's true. They suck blood. They should have developed werewolf powers in response to just white people with, like, fucking smallpox. But are the vampires more dangerous than, like, Certainly the not, British Empire? I don't think so. what the vampires did not do is commit actual, like, genocide. <laughs> so no, that's another weird... weird I mean, human... Like, just human colonizers are way more of a threat to this tribal way of life than, like, three vampires. <laughs> but I guess that's just, like... I guess that's just what happened with, like, fucking monster genetics or whatever. But I, that thought did cross my mind. 
And there's also, there's like class differences between, there's like literal class differences between the werewolves and the vampires. Like the Quileutes, in a realistic way, aren't depicted as having very much money. Like Jacob sort of lives in like a pretty, Jacob and Billy Black live in a pretty like rural house. Their friend Harry Clearwater like dies pretty young of what it sounds like was like preventable heart disease. Uh, and meanwhile, the Cullens are, like, fucking, like, cheating at the stock market and getting rich as fuck, so... You're right. I don't know. This is actual class warfare in addition yeah, to everything else. it is. But, uh, I, I guess it is... It's really fucking problematic to make the Quileute werewolves, but it is, like, kind of rare and positive depiction of, like, of Native American people in, like, I don't a know mainstream... positive. They're werewolves. That's true. But... Apart from a couple of novels specifically written by Native folks for young people, I actually can't really think of books, especially books for this age group, that have Native American characters at all. In general, in American pop culture, there's pretty like deep-seated and vast erasure of the existence of Native Americans. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's not set in the past. It's, like, set in the modern day on, like, a reservation. Right. And on, as a person from a reservation, not from, but I grew up on a reservation, it feels like a pretty realistic sort of, like, physical and textural description of res life. Yeah. Like, including the sense of the community and the ways in which there's sort of, like, a separate kind of tribal governance structure in addition to kind of being somewhat integrated into the larger kind of like municipal structures of the region. And there's some subtly coded like racial tension because Mike Newton is like, why are you hanging out with the push kids, basically? Right. No, uh, they're, and which feels really realistic. So, I mean, it shows some of the like segregation as well. Right. And they go to their own like res school. Mm-hmm. And it, it, yeah, I mean, like, I've never been to, or, like, I, I haven't spent time with or on, like, Pacific Northwest Native folks. But, yeah, having grown up on Navajo, it doesn't feel other than the fucking werewolf thing. And she's a white lady, like, writing about, like, contemporary. Right, but she's a white lady writing about contemporary Native Americans that seems to have at least visited the place that she's writing about. That's true. So, I mean, it could be, it's, like, not great, but it could be way worse. It could be way the worse. The texture of the human side of the world of the Quileute feels pretty nuanced and realistic. And there isn't, it's like, yeah, they, they certainly seem to have less money than maybe other members of this community. But there also isn't like abject like poverty porn. Right, yeah. Um, Which I feel like you do get in white depictions of Native American life a lot. And like poverty is a huge problem in a lot of these communities but it isn't this sort of like sad destitute it's not depicted as like the single fact of their existence exactly you know and they're made they're like protagonists yeah it's like true some of the stuff is like essentializing about the werewolves but we don't get like a big speech from like billy black with like the kind of crying native american like stereotype in nobody's out here like the famous like environmentalist ad uh i'm thinking of where he's like oh like the land and like it's in our like bones or whatever you know that kind of like pocahontas like colors of the wind like 
thing. Also, we don't get that. Nobody's out here like wearing a headdress. Like she hasn't sort of randomly compressed like everything anyone knows about any tribe in the entire country into like one like look. Yeah. I was expecting to come into these books and like really cringe at these parts and maybe I would if I was like not a white man, but I don't know. It uh I just think that it you're right. It's it's interesting that there are Native Americans in these books at all because that's fucking rare. Especially in like kind of fantasy literature that takes place in the real world. I mean, let's just say these books are more diverse than Harry Potter, like Oh, full absolutely. Stop, you know? Yeah. There are yeah, they're more ethnically diverse. They're more sort of socioeconomically diverse, with the exception of the Weasleys. Like they have a more realistic texture of like people who are different from each other, like living in close proximity in a way that's not constantly like at war. Yeah. So yeah, they are. They and you're right. They are full stop more diverse than Harry Potter. So I mean, point to Stephanie Meyer. <laughs> in that way, yeah, I think you're right. All right, let's do some. Let's do like some Marxist reading of Twilight. Do you? So we talked about how there. Actually, Marxist? Yeah. Oh, okay. Go we, ahead. we talked about how the vampires are naturally extractive. And, like, Karl Marx actually uses a lot of, like, vampire metaphors in his writing. He says capital is dead labor that can only, like, survive by sucking on living labor. So there's a little of that with the, uh, with the Volturi, if we're, like, reading them as, like, kind of Western... Capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> to the point where uh, they're employing, like, receptionists that are humans who are, like, hoping to join, like, the, like, extractive class, basically. And they may or may not. It's just completely at the whim of, like, the top vampires. And probably they're just going to get, like, chewed up in it. But Gianna, to me, she's complicit in evil or, like, murder at the very least. Well, oh, sorry, evil. Gianna. Gianna is their reception. Gianna's their human receptionist that like gives a human face to the Volturi, and she's like accepted this like clerk job in the hopes of becoming a vampire. Uh, she's complicit in evil, but I mean, but I mean, if she's just a fucking worker or whatever, if you're like a receptionist for a living, like this is like immortality is way better like job prospects. In the long run, I guess, then, uh, like, you're not going to work your way up to CEO. Uh, of the Volturi. At, uh, <laughs> but, you know, just, like, working at, like, some faceless corporation. Some people do. That's true. Well, that's the that's the, the myth, myth that, that big companies, like, sell you, right? That you're going to, like, work your way up to the top. But you probably won't. You'll probably... Just get your blood sucked right. out. Right. Die in the sort of maw of... <laughs> like labor <laughs> no that's true and i mean the uh the werewolves in this respect is sort of like are the werewolves like anti-capitalist because I they're mean, like they are communal that's true but the way but they're like these columns say they're good but Why vampire trust that yeah like they can become bad at any moment and like vampires can just like so are the cullens basically like a b corp I think so. I don't, in this reading of it, I'm not saying I believe this. This is like, these aren't like my deeply held beliefs about like the Twilight series. And I'm not like, Marx's criticism is like way down the list of like my competencies. But 
anytime we talk about vampires, there's always like class anxiety like built around it because right. vampires are always kind of depicted as like upper class and there's that uh the yeah the sucking like right. there's a reason Marx found it to be like the extraction of the lifeblood mm-hmm. found it to be like a a useful a useful metaphor so yeah uh i don't know well just a, th- just a stray thought speaking of which we talked about how bella has virtually no like characteristics as a character but one she does have is a pure, uncut amorality, <laughs> which we learn about from her interactions with both Jacob and Edward in these books. There are multiple, there's two specific moments where she's, at first she thinks the werewolves, so there's this whole, I didn't really get into this in the summary, there's this whole B-plot of the town can't figure out why people are like disappearing with, like, blood left behind. And it turns out that it's this fucking vampire Victoria. And that, like, thread never goes anywhere. It's, like, resolved in the next book. But at first, Bella thinks it's the werewolves who are doing the killing. And she's like, oh, this is wrong. And I guess I should tell Jacob to stop. But, like, if Jacob is a murderer, I I guess I love him. So I guess I just have to, like, accept that. And then she has the same thought later with Edward. She's like, would I still feel the same way if he was a vampire that killed humans? She, like, takes a beat, and she's like, yeah, probably still would feel the same way about him. I didn't like to think that I was a hypocrite. Only what was the point of lying to myself? I curled into a tight ball. No, Edward wasn't a killer. Even in his darker past, he'd never been a murderer of innocence, at least. But what if he had been? What if, during the time that I'd known him, he had been just like any other vampire? What if people had been disappearing from the woods just like now? Would that have kept me away from him? I shook my head sadly. Love is irrational, I reminded myself. The more you love someone, the less sense anything made. I rolled over and tried to think of something else. She's like, love is just irrational. Like, you can't help how love makes you feel and act. Which is just, like, not morally or ethically accurate. I guess... Slightly in Bella's defense, she confronts Jacob and is like, hey, are you killing people? To which he says no. And she's like, oh, phew. Yeah. But. Like, but she she does like. Decide. Decide in two different parts of this book that she would like suggest that maybe you don't murder people. And these are conscious decisions. Yeah. She like weighs the implications and decides she doesn't care. So. And then she sees a whole horde of tourists get murdered later. And she's still just like, well. I guess I Well, wanna... she she flinches at that. She's like, oh my god, like, fuck Gianna. Yeah, she... but she still wants to be a vampire. That's true. She still wants to join the society in which there is sort of like... I mean, the Cullens That's like, true. Immediately after they get complicit in this. Immediately after they get home, she's still dead set on becoming a vampire. Despite the fact that she's witnessed this. And like, you know, the Cullens have like made a lifestyle choice, but it's not like they're actively resisting the like Volturi way of life. Like, they're complacent in the sort of larger system as long as they don't get threatened so the thing yeah well i mean i guess like we all have to make choices like that right like we're all complicit in like bad oh yeah systems or whatever and we're not like like are the clones supposed to like raise a resistance to go like level volterra 
I mean, they could. They could. They'd probably fucking fail. Yeah, but like lots of resistance movements that were ethical have failed. I mean, the other thing that's interesting about these books and that really, really differs from Harry Potter in a way that I find fascinating is there are no sort of like large universal motivations for any character's actions. All of their actions are motivated by like pure like interpersonal relationships. Yeah, it's not the monolithic struggle between good or evil where people are like really talking about this battle between light and dark the way they are in Harry Potter. And that can get kind of boring in Harry Potter, but at the same time, like there just aren't really very moral characters in these books. They're very like factional and sort of there's like these ancient kind of like one-on-one or like small group on small group like grudges or the protection of people that you individually love as opposed to sort of the like defense of the weak overall or the protection of a way of life that you view as like moral in a wider sense yeah it's pretty it's much more intimate than like a high fantasy novel right which the struggle the stakes are more intimate it's kind of cool in that way but it's also just like it means that none of these characters are particularly good people (laughs) which i guess isn't necessarily a problem but it does make it hard if you like zoom out a little bit to have any real sympathy for like any of their actions because they're not making decisions based on a larger sense of like justice which is sort of important to me as a person in my like conception of like doing good in the world right I don't think it's like particularly thoughtful to have all your decisions be based on the I mean that's like what nationalism is <laughs> yeah yeah it's you're like right. all of your decisions are based on the sort of like to the death defense of your in-group as opposed to like thinking more largely about like what like social justice should mean well bella's decisions are even though she's painted as like very selfless because she's like constantly sacrificing for the men in her life bella's decisions are ultimately selfish most of the time like her main goal in these books is how do i get with edward right how do i be happy which is fine that's like how do i be happy is like most of our goals right well but but often how we are happy encompasses like if you read about like happiness research yeah one of the things that true happiness encompasses is a sense of larger purpose and bella really doesn't have that bella has this incredibly small focused selfish purpose to her life and true happiness like seriously there's like good scientific research that human well-being depends on helping others and i guess or not not helping others because they're people that you are personally attached to but because there's like a larger sense of doing good. Yeah. That's an important aspect of being happy that Bella is just ignoring. And to be fair, she's a teen. Yeah, that's true. But you know what? Lots of fucking teens do like volunteer work. <laughs> One of the funniest parts of this book to me is when Edward says, oh, the Volturi might not show up until you're 30. And she's like, ew, 30? Like, disgusting. Like, I don't want to be 30. That is and, like, so be with- It's like, the fuck? Also, Bella, your 30s are actually great. Because you're not constantly on this like emotional roller coaster. You're feeling a little more like yourself. And you probably have a better relationship with Edward. Yeah. 
and with other people. If the other hit, thing if, is, if you allowed yourself to hit thirty, but I do wonder: is Edward constantly stuck in a seventeen-year-old mindset? He very clearly is. That is. why he's like fucking like this all the time. I just want to be like, dude, you're like ninety-eight or whatever. But you know what? As fucking Teen Vogue and Parkland have taught us, <laughs> there are thoughtful and moral seventeen-year-olds. I mean, Edward you need okay, you need one. You need multiple perspectives, right? You need the olds. You need the youngs. You need the 30-somethings. You do. Do you think Carlisle's in his 30s? I think even he's younger than that. I don't think anyone was frozen older than their 20s in these books. Wow. Which is like why these guys are a mess. <laughs> it was a mess. If I was like 25 eternally, my whole life would be a disaster. I don't know about you, but I'm feeling 22. Forever. forever. God, there's a lot of good Taylor Swift <laughs> allegory up in here. There's even this part... Where this is so selfish and so teen, but there's lots of teens that wouldn't do this, so I don't want to ascribe this to all of them because I fucking love the teens. Bella abandons her father as he's mourning his best friend. So fucked. And throws him into like a pure panic about her well-being. Like he comes back from the funeral of his closest friend and his daughter has just bounced. It is to save Edward's life. Yeah, but But also Edward is... Being very fucking dramatic has put himself in this situation for, like, no reason. He doesn't even fact check that Bella is actually dead. He's not like, "Mm, maybe this is wrong, because he's so obsessed with, like, reenacting fucking Romeo and Juliet, because it's both of their favorite play, even though it's not even, like... Good. Is it a top ten Shakespeare play? Maybe it is. It's, like, pretty fucking famous. It's iconic. I mean, name a more iconic duo. Than Romeo and Juliet? You really can't. I'll wait. Yeah. Yeah, fair. (laughs) I, I don't know. But it's like, guys, you're taking the wrong lesson from Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, the actual- It's fine if that's your favorite play, actually. You're just completely misreading it. The actual lesson of Romeo and Juliet is trust but verify. <laughs> so, yes. Uh, who's your unsung hero? My unsung hero are the people- I have multiple unsung heroes. They're the people of Forks who- Drop fucking everything to search the woods for Bella because her boyfriend broke up with her and she just laid down in, in a leaf middle, pile. In the middle of the forest. Just like, just laid down. God, here's another fucked up thing that Bella does. She jumps off the cliff. Maybe it's a suicide attempt. Maybe it's not. I don't know what she thought was going to happen by jumping into like roiling seawater. And her like, it works. It brings Edward back. I know. That's a horrible message. It's a really bad that message. That is a fucked up message. Yeah, you will get attention by gesturing suicide. That is that is vile. I agree. In these books. That that might be the single like most troubling aspect of these books. There's no way that's true. You don't so, think so much of this so is so much fucking is tr- troubling. So much is troubling. I don't know. It, I have one last philosophical question on that. What? Is it okay to read problematic books like this what you would call that i guess problematic like trademark whatever sorry tmtm yeah tmtmtm of course it is yeah all your faves are problematic i think you're right twitter taught me that no of course it is what are you gonna read that's not problematic you're reading fucking paradise lost right now (laughs) speaking of fucking problematic that's true milton had this like buck wild treatise on divorce that is like pretty fucking problematic which you also you should read it's kind of interesting but, like, Milton is a problematic fave. Right. Yeah, I think I think with stuff like Twilight, I think it is okay to enjoy it. Like, we rip on this stuff, but it's like a please consume responsibly thing. Yeah. Don't and- read this book and think that 
jumping off a cliff will bring your boyfriend back. And I also believe, I think this is the ethos of the podcast that we're making, that entertainment is meant to be both enjoyed and criticized. Yeah. Like, I don't, I mean, you know, we get like fucking reviews on an Apple Podcasts or whatever that are like, leave politics out of it. And I think that most literature, even literature for young people, is pretty inherently political. Not like left-right political, but yeah. like in a larger sense. I mean, to me, that's just like why art exists and it's why you make it. And I just wanted to say, when we're saying something is like, scare quotes problematic we're not like oh don't fucking read this or like no we're not trying to say that like no one should be reading this but just that it's interesting to like ask why a book is what a book is or how a book became like what it is who's your unsung hero my unsung hero is quill who is the so jacob has these two besties named embry and quill and embry gets kind of sucked into the sam Yuli, like cult that turns out it's an actual like wolf cult before Jacob and Jacob and Quill are like really freaked out about why all of a sudden Embry's acting fucking weird and then it happens to Jacob and poor Quill is like honestly I just don't want to get a really high fever and become a fucking wolf <laughs> like is there a way I can avoid this please Quill seems like a sweet young man he's like smaller and younger than the other ones and he's like can we really just not and I'm aligned with that philosophy this week's episode is brought to you by Newton's Olympic Outfitters. We don't know what bears look like. <laughs> it's a giant fucking bear out there. It's actually a huge wolf. The audiobook clips that you heard are courtesy, once again, of Penguin Random House Audio, though this time they are from Ileana Kadushin's performance of Twilight New Moon. Next week, we are, of course, back to our roots with Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. We will be discussing the chapters called The Half-Blood Prince and The House of Gaunt. You can do all the things you do with podcasts, quibblerpodcast at gmail.com. Don't email nibblerpodcast at gmail.com because that shit don't exist. Talk to you guys soon. Ciao, Bella. They showed a movie. And my neighbor got headphones. Sometimes I watched the figures moving across the little screen, but I couldn't even tell if the movie was supposed to be a romance or a horror film. After an eternity, the plane began to descend toward New York City. Time to open presents, Alice declared. She put her cool hand under my elbow and towed me to the table with the cake and the shiny packages. I put on my best martyr face. Alice, I know I told you I didn't want anything, but I didn't listen, she interrupted, smug. Open it. One present, two presents, three presents, four presents, five beautiful presents. Ah, ah, ah.